If you have a Bible, you can open to the book or books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. That's what we're going to be covering this morning as we continue our year-long journey through the entirety of Scripture. Um, I don't know about you. It could just be, you know, you're like near the last three quarters of the race and you're ready to move on to the next thing. Um, And I think Anthony probably shares in the sentiment, ready to slow down in the, the Bible a little bit. So that's, that's the plan for the new year. After, I think it's January 2nd is the first Sunday, or January 1st. We'll finish Revelation and then we'll, we promise you, we're not doing this again. So anyways, we'll continue that through. Uh, announcements before we get into the teaching. My name's John and I'm one of the pastors here. If you have any questions, uh, fill out one of the connect cards that's in the back. We'd love to get in contact with you answer any questions you may have about the church, how you might connect into the life of the church. Uh, And then we have a few things coming up. The first is in two Sundays from today, I believe that's October 30th, it will be the fifth Sunday of the month. And if you have been with us for any amount of time, the fifth Sunday in our rhythm is a family worship Sunday. It's an opportunity for the younger kids to be with us. And so it gives volunteers a little bit of a break and parents a little bit of a stretch um, for that. And so Family Worship Sunday, this coming October 30th, we are going to do family dedications. And so uh, if you have any questions about that or want to get, it's not like the full-on Simba Lion King dedication. That's how I imagine it a little bit. Uh, And if you want that, we could arrange that, you know, Uh, a a premiere dedication where they get raised. (laughs) No, we... I I like Lion King in that every time that I think of dedication. So that's on October 30th. I'll be contacting most families. I think I'm going to be going, who has a baby? And then I'll email you. And if you don't get an email from me, then just ask me because I probably don't have your email. Or I'm human and I've forgotten. So that's coming up October 30th. Then uh, Saturday, November 5th, we have a day of service where we are partnering with other churches throughout the area um, for the common good. So we'll be doing projects at Prescott High School, uh, Glassford Hill Middle School, and I believe there's going to be another set of projects with Prescott Valley Parks Department. And so if you or your community would like to sign up for that, there's more info at the website, servecollective.org. Servecollective.org is where you can sign up and register for one of of those projects. And then finally, in November, we will uh, officially unveil our foster care Christmas party idea thing again. We are going to be doing that again and working with Hillary, who's a part of Arizona Baptist Children's Services. They're a local foster care agency. And I know some of you have asked, hey, where's Hillary? Hillary is our director of Connect, for those of you who don't know her. And she's been out for about a month or so now with some health concerns. Uh, She is in this process of testing and waiting to find out what's going on. And so she's been absent for about a month. So we're going to pray for her this morning. Uh, I talked to her on the phone this week, and and we're still going to continue with the foster care Christmas thing where we adopt foster uh, families and buy gifts, and then we'll do a party in December where we wrap them. Um, And I know some of you have asked, hey, where's Hillary? Um, And if you've been part of church, there's like kind of two ways that it often goes. It's people just leave quietly, or they leave loudly, or they just disappear, and the pastoral staff's like, Hillary who? (laughs) And we don't want to roll that way. And Hillary hasn't left. She's just experienced some health difficulties and, again, is continuing some testing. And so we're going to pray for her 
together. Um, and honestly, if any of you have requests like that or are facing something big like that, just let us know, and we'd love to pray with you either individually or all together as a church family. So I'm going to pray for Hillary. Denise then will come up and read 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 10, and then we'll get into the sermon. And so, Father, again, we thank you that we are a body, and uh, we recognize that one, when one member is suffering, then it has an impact on us all, and so we want to lift up our sister Hillary today as she finds herself in the difficult in-between place of having um, just struggles in her own body physically and uh, a lot of ambiguity as to why that is. And so we ask that your grace would meet her in that place, uh, that you would provide um, answers and a plan quickly as she works with multiple different doctors and, and uh, people in the medical um, profession. And that we would continue to be faithful, um, praying with and for her and one another as we look to pursue you together. And so we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Denise. Good morning. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given to the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit. And so you become a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell, you, or they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Thanks. Let's pray again. And so, Father, as we turn our hearts and attention to your word, may you shape us and mold us to see your son more clearly, discern your way in this world a little more fully, that you would convict us of sin and lead us in righteousness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you want your alliterated title, again, getting sick of that as well, uh, Hope, Holiness, and Handles. Hope, Holiness, and Handles. I, I told my mother-in-law last night that we were going to be talking about holiness, and she said, uh, and gave me permission. Well, it's great that you have an example in your in-laws of which you can draw much from. And I should have said that's pride, which is not holy, Linda. 
So here we are, flying through the New Testament. We reach another set of letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which uh, are from Paul to another church in Thessalonica. If you want more of the backstory there, you can look to Acts 17, where you see the start of a church. Like Colossians, it was founded on one monumental fact of faith, and it is this, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-anticipated and expected Savior of the world. And the call is not just simply to admire him, not to learn about him, but to follow him in everything. And you see in that community, there's Jews and Greeks, there's men and women that are brought into this new community family of faith. And like most churches in the first century, what quickly follows is persecution. There's, there's pressure and there is uh, an, just antagonization. That's not even in a word. There's people who want to antagonize the church. And it pushes Paul out to the next town And as his habit is, he then follows up with letters to encourage, to assure, to warn, and to help God's people as they follow Jesus in life in the midst of pressure and temptation. And much of the content in these two letters is around hope and holiness. And the third H handles is my desire is to give a little bit of of handles around all of that for everyday life for us today. As most of Paul's letters do, it begins, as Denise read, with thanks. Paul is praying for and celebrating their faith in subsequent flourishing that has emerged even in the midst of their suffering. And I'm reminded it's not just filler and fluff. For those who are familiar with the New Testament, who have read the letters of Paul again and again and again, you kind of get to these intros and you're like, yeah, yeah, get, get to the part where you tell me what to do. A little bit, you know, because he's recounting all these details that uh, we're so detached from and that can often be foreign to us. But he's celebrating and putting on display their faith in Christ's work and the subsequent, again, flourishing that has emerged even in the midst of the persecution and suffering that they are facing. All of their lives have flowed from the salvation that Jesus granted them. And he's encouraging them, and I would say us as well today, to remember that miracle that often gets pushed to the back of our brains, to the back of our consciousness, where we don't have that in the front row seat, and and we don't put much time and attention to it. But you see in verse 5, as he's reminding them, because our gospel, the the good news of Jesus, came to them not only in word, it wasn't just a, a set of facts or some details, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. The gospel came and genuine change took place because the gospel has latent within it dynamic power to transform, to to bring together a people, to form a people, to transform a people. And I know enough of us in this room today to go, that's our story too. I know enough of us to go, y'all, y'all weren't this put together at one point in time. Denise nodded like this. <laughs> I'm just calling you out on that. But all of us who are in Christ could do this. That Jesus rescued us out of some stuff. 
for me, uh, pride and Phariseeism. Yeah, and continues to rescue me out of a lot of pride, religiosity, just overconfidence in self. All of us. He has rescued us and changed us and then leads us in life to continue following him and flourishing in him even when life is difficult. Again, for this church, they're new believers. They're founded on this faith. And all of a sudden, pressure begins surrounding them in the form of persecution and suffering. But what happens? They're flourishing. And so that's just like a little side note for all of us. We can flourish. We have the tools to flourish even when life is hard, when things don't go our way, when it's not ideal. No matter how this world and our context ends up going in the next 10, 15, 20 years, there's a lot of doomsday predictions of how that's all going to go. We simply don't know, can't predict that. But we do know because of the power of the Spirit and the promises of God that flourishing can happen. Because the gospel has come, it's transformed us, and then it has this reverberation and ripple effect in the midst of the world. You see that in verse 9 for this church. They themselves, these other churches, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God, or turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their story and their testimony was going out into the world and having an effect. Because this is newsworthy and, and noteworthy. When people turn from idols to Jesus, there's a change in life. And then it's kind of like, okay, so salvation comes. It brings change. You turn from idols. You turn to Jesus. Then you're kind of like a kid and you go, okay, what, what's next? What now? So what? Who cares? Then what? Well, Paul gives a word that isn't so exciting for us. He says, and then, verse 10, we wait. They wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The what's next of the Christian life, there's a lot of aspects to it, but one of the central aspects is waiting. Waiting on Jesus, who saved us and will save us from the wrath that is to come, from God's judgment that is promised on this world, we wait for him. We wait for him to return. We wait for him to make all things new. And that may not sound so exciting, but that is the central hope of the Christian faith. That Jesus, who was raised from the dead after being crucified on the cross, will return and make all things new. As the creed say, he will judge the living and the dead. That's the hope of the Christian faith. And I think it's one of the things that we often either distort or simply lose sight of. So for this first century church, but despite their, their past sin, failings, idolatry, and, and despite their present temptation and persecution and suffering, Paul is redirecting them to wait for this promised return of the king. And that hope isn't a naive optimism a, well, it'll get better one day. Kind of that empty, trite, it'll all work out that we often can throw out when things get tough, but we know it's kind of hollow and, and shallow and saccharine. Maybe you've received that, been on the receiving end of that, going through something. and Well, the Lord's just going to work it all out. And you're like, you just don't want to step into my mess. 
You're just saying words to not have to deal with any emotional connection to what I'm actually facing. Not all the time. I'm, I'm not bashing everyone all the time for saying such things. My cynicism can show in that. But this, again, is the, the hope. It's not a naive optimism that detaches us from real suffering today, but it's a confident expectation and anticipation. And what's the difference between the two? How do you know if you're just kind of going empty cliche or really hoping in Christ? Well, it's what it's built on. And the hope of the Christian faith is built not on just some pie in the sky, I think it'll work out in the end. But it is built on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. As empty as the tomb was and is, so too we can hope in Jesus to return as he promised. And what Paul shows in many of his letters, including these two to the church in Thessalonica, is that in the resurrection of Jesus, a new age has dawned. A new world has begun in what the followers of Jesus then and today live in, and we've talked about this much over the years, is the overlap of the ages. Its theological term is the already not yet of God's kingdom. That's where we live. Tim Keller in his book, uh, um, I don't know, it's the newest one, Hope in Times of Fear. My brain's not working. I was camping on Friday into yesterday, and and. I'm running on uh, some donuts and coffee. I broke the fast this morning. I was like, I need something. So here it is. You're like, I can tell. Tim Keller, he says this. The resurrection was indeed a miraculous display of God's power. But we should not see it as a suspension of the natural order of the world. Rather, it was the beginning of the restoration of the natural order of the world. The world as God intended it to be. The resurrection means not merely that Christians have a hope for the future, but that they have a hope that comes from the future. The Bible's startling message is that when Jesus rose, he brought the future kingdom of God into the present. And when we talk about this hope, it has to come in the tension of both. I don't know if you remember, I I don't expect you to remember the personality profile test I created some months ago. It was the finger pointer or the navel gazer. Valente, you remember it. I got a new one. You ready for it? It's overly simplistic. Are you an already or a not yet type person? And, and really, I think individually we have leanings one way or the other. Uh, and churches as a whole take on personalities that tend to be churches that are already churches or not yet churches. Churches that emphasize the kingdom has come, or churches that go, we aren't there yet. And again, the emphasis will be one or the other, natural leanings. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Tim Keller says, the implications of this are significant. If we overstress the already of the kingdom to the exclusion of the not yet, we will expect quick solutions to problems and we will be dismayed by, the, by suffering and tragedy. But we can likewise overstress the not yet of the kingdom to the exclusion of the already. We can be too pessimistic about personal change. We can withdraw from engaging the world, too afraid of being polluted by it. So where do you lean? Already or not yet. What, what the call is, is to live in the tension of it. 
And often when the church begins talking about the kingdom of God, and especially the return of Jesus, we get caught up in the quagmire of theories and details around it all. And if you've been within church any amount of time, you're like, well, are you millennial? Are you post-millennial? Are you pre-millennial? One of my favorite stories of this all is one guy, oh man, is so great. So if you didn't know, there's, there's three major views of the millennial reign of Christ that you read about in Revelation. It is amill, pre-mill, or post-mill. Amillennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial. And then within those camps, there's some different, you know, persuasions. Wayne Grudem, who teaches at uh, Phoenix Seminary, wrote the big, thick, systematic theology book. He's known for uh, giving out the historic premillennial position when it comes to the millennial reign of Christ. I say all that to say this. This one guy was trying to be a little bit smart, and he's like, yeah, I, I'm prehistoric millennial. And I'm like, so I was like, that the dinosaurs are going to come back? <laughs> I've never heard of prehistoric millennialism, but that's, that's one I could get behind. The dinosaurs are going to come back first, and then the T-Rex is going to, I don't know. So that's Jurassic Park. But again and again, all that, that ridiculous, uh, nonsensical rabbit hole is that we often can get caught up in the theories and convictions, and it's like, well, they believe this, and, and lose sight of what Scripture's actually doing for actual people in real life. And so maybe one day we'll get into those particulars. I'm not going to do it today. I'm just going to make jokes about certain people. Um, But here's what we hold to as a church. We have in our midst people who have different levels of conviction around all of that. Amil, pre-mil, post-mil, when rapture, no right, like all of that. And if you want to have a coffee discussion around that, sure. I I would suggest Anthony over me. Um, Just... In that, he's gonna be gentler and kindler and kindler. He's got a, uh, huh? You just, you're, you got less baggage around it all than I do. But what we have a, a close handed conviction around is that Jesus promised to return and he will one day return physically, bodily, and make all things new. That's what. What I, I'm about, that's, I think, what the Bible's about. That's what we can get up. And, and if you got a little bit of a different conviction around that, okay, cool. I'm not going to fight you on it. Um, you can try to fight me on it, and you're just going to hit this face, and that's fine. <laughs> Here's what Paul says again and again in these letters, that, that the hope of Jesus' return does something for the people of God. First, in... 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11 through 13, in the midst of his prayer for them. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints." So he's saying, until Jesus returns, I'm praying and hoping to return to you and that in the meantime, your love may abound. It's very similar to the prayer he gives for the church in uh, Philippi in that book's first chapter. Then this, chapter 4, verse 13. These verses are, are hotly contested, okay, about the return of Jesus. But, but if we read it as a whole, try to capture what Paul's doing and saying here for these people. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, 
that is those who have passed away, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, so to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Again, we aren't going to take the time to do a deep dive into that. One day we will. But I think what's often missed in this is verse 18. We just stop at 17, and then we argue or we postulate our opinions on this text and what it looks like, and we do not encourage one another with these words. We don't use this promise that even as Jesus rose from the dead, he will return. That those who have passed away, who are in Christ, that we will be reunited together with him. We don't use that as encouragement. We use it as points for arguing. So anytime we start talking about the second return of Jesus and it's turning into a debate, we've lost the plot. Encourage one another with these words. Then his second letter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 through 12. This is apocalyptic, uh, intense language that Paul uses about Jesus' return and him judging the living and the dead. He says this, 2 Thessalonians verse, chapter 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, not going to take all the time to dive into that. Those verses are not very popular in our context. And I think part of that is because we don't suffer much. We haven't suffered much persecution, at least in, in my time. And again, theories, it's going to get harder. It's going to get more difficult for the church. Maybe. And if it does, I can almost guarantee you that these verses will become more and more precious. In some of my reading over the years where you see people taking hope in the justice and judgment of God is those that are suffering persecution and choosing to love through it. You can read uh, Miroslav Volf. He's 
Bosnia, Herzegovina, that whole conflict. And, and he talks about Christians that have been persecuted, that have suffered, who have le- had loved ones martyred. You hold to this. It saves you from bitterness of wanting to exact vengeance on your enemies and still love them. Why? Because Jesus one day will. And so for us today, again, we can resist this. That sounds a little bit intense, but I think part of the reason we don't don't find comfort in that intensity is because we ourselves don't necessarily know how to suffer and haven't suffered much persecution. And if we have suffered persecution, if we have suffered from mockery and difficulty at the expense of being a follower of Jesus, again, not the the separate category that's a jerk for Jesus, you post all sorts of stuff online and you're like, oh, I'm being persecuted. It's like, no, you just lack tact and and love and are just kind of a rude person and there's repercussions for that relationally, that, that genuinely, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're suffering for his name, You're going to love your enemies because that's what Jesus has done. And you're going to trust that Jesus is either going to save or is going to bear down judgment one day. And you don't find joy in that on the sake of others. You're going to get yours. You're going to go, I hope you come to the saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because he has promised to return. And in his return, he's going to take his family with him into glory And he's going to judge those who have not yet followed him or have chosen to not follow him. And what we are reminded of in these letters as Paul puts the return of Jesus front and center for these people is that what we, and I'm stealing this from the Bible Project, what we hope for shapes what we live for. What we hope for shapes what we live for. And it's at that point that we have to allow the Spirit of God to to illuminate for us what we are truly hoping for in this life. We, we often don't hope in the return of Jesus. We often don't look to Jesus as our ultimate hope. We're looking for an increase in pay, a, a level up in our careers. We're, we're hoping for health, for whatever outcome we want in this life. And our eyes can often be shifted from center and shifted from Jesus who he is, what he's done, and his promise of a return. So just reflect on that. What priority do you give to the promise of Jesus' return? What, What level of reflection and anticipation do you place that the king of the universe will make all things new? Again, it's one of those things that suffering puts on the forefront for us. And God can use that as a gift to remind us and realign us with what really matters in life. But when we hope in him, when we look to him, something happens in our souls. And the word that I'm using for that is holiness. Hope causes something to sprout in our souls. And so Paul, in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, he puts before them the fact that Jesus has saved them, that Jesus is going to return. And then as he does in most of his letters, he gives these practical admonitions and encouragement of what life is to look like for them. And we get a glimpse of that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so, uh, do so more and more. For 
you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do, who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What Paul is giving them a vision of is a holy life. Now, I understand that word has fallen out of favor and largely has a negative connotation. When somebody thinks of the word holy, it's usually in association with an individual who is holier than thou, right? And, and not only do we not like those sorts of people, holier than thou type people, but what happens is if enough time goes by and you know someone long enough, then you begin to not see their holiness, <laughs> but their hypocrisy. And so again, with this word holiness, it's fallen out of favor. And, and again, your story tells why you might not like this word or like this word. Possibly due to hypocrisy. Uh, there's, there's one from, from my childhood often, and it is connected to holiness and the return of Jesus. It's, well, what do you want to be caught doing when Jesus returns? Hmm? Like, oh, phew. Okay. Not going to watch that. And there's, yeah, anyways. Let your own imaginations take that away. I think there's lack of clarity around holiness. Uh, there's, when we talk about holiness, it's often not around even what Jesus has called us to, but it's those secondary or third tier rules that are on top of the rules that are then the primary rules like the code of ethics that the church has of what you can and can't do. And even though there's not a direct verse associated with it, it's like, well, this is the culture. And we elevate those things up to here. Holiness has fallen out of favor. Again, maybe hypocrisy, maybe a lack of clarity. I think it's often detached from hope in the call to holiness isn't tethered to Jesus, but looking a sort of way in the midst of the world. But when we think about holiness, who we should think about is Jesus. And when you think about Jesus, you see how he interacted with people. He, he was actually called unholy by the religious leaders and rulers. A glutton and a drunkard, Jesus was called. And if Jesus was without sin, then that means he wasn't gluttonous or drunk, because those are explicitly you know, don't do those things. That's in the law. That's what Jesus was following. Jesus was without sin. But the perception from people was that he was unholy. Now, 
you're also not Jesus, nor am I. So I've seen that, well, Jesus was accused of this and that, and you're like, yeah, but you're not Jesus. So you probably need a few more limitations around your life, and you are drunk. Uh, <laughs> overeating and indulging and all that, so. But I think here's, here's a couple of things that I want to encourage us in this morning when it comes to Jesus and holiness is that often when holiness is taught about, or really Christian ethics in general, how Christians are called to live, it, it often moves from, well, Jesus died for your sins, so trust in him, and very quickly moves to, now get to work. And, and the emphasis of it, now, is there work to be done? yes. Is there a life to be lived? Yes, but the second that we move from both the heart and motivation and the, the resources from which we draw on for these things, we can, again, lose the plot of it all. There's two key things to remember when it comes to holiness, and the order really, really matters. First is this, that holiness is gifted, and the second is that holiness is grown into. So first, holiness is gifted freely and fully by Jesus. Humans cannot manufacture holiness on their own. It is a resource that you cannot mine on this earth. It is gifted by God. And you see that in chapter 1, that they are loved by God. They are chosen by God. They have experienced the gospel in power and spirit from God. 1 Corinthians, to that Messy church, Paul writes this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he gives this list. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, drunkards nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So again, these verses can be used and you take that first part and that long list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God and those sins that are practiced and you pick the one you like the least or are disgusted by the most and then you can rail against that and miss sight of the whole fact that we are are, apart from Jesus, that list. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our trespasses. So even if one of these tendencies or habits or temptations isn't yours, dead is still dead. And Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. That is set apart. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Not in the name of your own works, your own confession, your own prayer that you pray. It has nothing to do with us. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. So Christians, universally, we are saved by grace. So the holiness that we receive, the washing, the cleansing, the sanctifying, the justifying, that is a one-time thing that God does for us in Jesus. The fact that every follower of Jesus is righteous and holy and blameless and pure, that is a gift from God. Thank Jesus for that. 
We have not manufactured that. We have not produced that. We have not done that on our own. It's a gift that we receive by faith. You, if you are in Jesus, you are holy. You may not look it, you may not feel it, but you are. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Holiness is a gift given to us by God. And then second, holiness is something we grow into. That we continually need to turn from idols to serve and follow the living God. Again, this is the tension of the already not yet of the kingdom. Because in Jesus it's been said that the power of sin is defeated in the resurrection. But do we still battle and struggle against the presence of sin? Yes. But the tools are given for that fight. It was the Puritan John Owen who is best known for saying the phrase, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And there's this process that the Puritans describe as mortification, that is dying to um, and killing off the flesh, and vivification of living into life in the spirit. That in the Christian life, there's this constant putting to death the old man and living into and cultivating the life of the new man. In all of that, it's like weeds in a garden. That either you are pulling weeds or they are growing. Right? Master gardener, that's usually the process. You're either ridding weeds or they are growing. And many of us in our life, uh, it's, you know, you're like, I know it's more work to pull this out, deal with it at the root, get whatever help needed. I'll just weed whack it. And you're like, it's good. You're like, yeah, it's maybe better, but it's still there. And so what we need is and the, the understanding, the order, holiness is gifted, and then it's grown into. And as we look towards growing into holiness, yes, we need to better understand our stories. We need to know where we come from, the tendencies and habits we have. But it has to move us towards action. And I'll, I'll um, make fun of and give my own generation a hard time. We have been very good at growing in awareness. My generation is a little more adept when it comes to, yeah, I'll go see a therapist or a counselor and, and get some help, and, and I'll be real. I'm a messy person. I'm broken, all of that, and it, it's great. So then we know our personality profile, all of the personality profiles. It's like I got my Myers-Briggs, and I got my Enneagram, and I know that I'm a, a navel gazer and not a finger pointer, and I'm a not yet, not an already of the kingdom. I got two more today. Um, so I, I have all of this awareness, but what my, and then now I'm going to give everybody a hard time, whether or not you have the awareness, what we lack is the action to do something about it. And so again, I'm, go see a counselor, professional, a pastor, be known, do the digging. Where do these tendencies come from? Why is it here? But then we need to step into health and flourishing and action by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the tools for the task and they are available for us. We see that again and again in Thessalonians. They, they have the spirit of God, they have the word of God and they have one another for this battle. 
And the difficulty that we have today is that there, we, uh, we want instant hacks for holiness, but they don't necessarily exist. Patience in the process is needed. So it's like, well, give me three things I can do today. I'm like, okay, no. Like, I can give you three things to do, but that's not going to fix you. It's not going to fix me. There aren't any instant hacks to holiness. And I'm all about hacks and optimization and health and protocols. Listen to Andrew Huberman, the neuroscientist. If you haven't, like super duper helpful stuff from a scientific physiological perspective to, to better operate as a human in this world. But when it comes to holiness, there aren't hacks. But there are some handles and habits that are given. If you look at Paul's letters, every single one of them, including this, they're packed with prayer. I read once, and I won't read it again, uh, chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. You see how Paul is praying for them, the church in Philippi, about love abounding as they live with one another. That there's power in this partnership with God that is uh, experienced in prayer. That God would direct and increase and establish them as they and we walk and follow after him. You get this in Paul's instruction again and again, but the, the process comes with power and a promise, but what we need is patience with people, including ourselves. But notice the kind of lives that they and we are called to live. For Thessalonians 5, I'll read this collection of 10 verses that are like a bunch of practicalities one after another in light of Jesus' return. Verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look, the, the power and the promise in it all, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. And so you see that there's this reminder that the gift is that God has saved and is in the process of sanctification growing into it. J.C. Ryle has a book called Holiness. He says, holiness is the habit of being one mind with God according as we find his mind described in scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. And the why of it all is it's intended for the glory of God, the good of people, and salvation of the nations. And so what we often need is our motives to be aligned with God's heart, with God's word, with God's intent, because otherwise we lose heart, or worse, we become Pharisees when it comes to these things. Holiness isn't just so you can be the best version of yourself. Holiness is so that people might have a better glimpse in view of God. If you didn't believe me, two verses to help us. Two sets. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything 
except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what's the why behind your saltiness? Some of you are real salty. I'm not going to name any names. In the best kind of way, salt and light. It's so others may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Peter kind of builds on that a bit in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, one of my favorite sets of scripture. But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, there's that battle, that tension already, not yet. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so the why behind holiness is witness. Not to ourselves, but to Jesus and to God. And so what I'm reminded of this week is that the language of Jesus and the apostles is much more around cultivation and preparation and not fabrication and manipulation. And we want things to be churned out quick. And that's not the way the kingdom of God works. Most of the metaphors have to deal with farming. And that takes time. And it's frustrating and not guaranteed. I get this lesson every year in taking care of my in-law's yard. And they have two apple trees and blackberries and pear trees and all that. And it is completely unpredictable what it will produce. Stunk for apples this year. Blackberries booming. I, like, but what do you do? You go, ah, I didn't have any apples this year, so I'm going to cut down this tree? <laughs> no. You trim it again, work at it again, pray, and see what God does in it all. And, and, so, and so here's, here's a, a pithy line for, for you youngsters uh, and myself. I need to observe the farmer more than the influencer. Dude, save that, save that one for camp. When Anthony and I are teaching youth camp, save that one for camp. The kids will love it. <laughs> Anthony has been tasked, and I have been tasked for teaching a youth camp uh, in February for whoever at Prescott Pines. And Anthony called it Pilgrim. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a Pilgrim outfit for it. And the kids are going to be like, this guy's an idiot. And I'm like, this is why I'm not in youth ministry. <laughs> All right, I'm going to close finally. Yeah, oh my gosh, sorry. <laughs> Too long with this. Here's, here's five reflections for uh, hope and holiness. And then I'll pray. This is just what's been churning on my mind, and it can all fit on one hand. And my father-in-law likes, you know, five things. You can fit them all on one hand. 
Remember the return of Jesus for real life. So it's not just some pie in the sky. It's a promise that does actually affect today. So remember, Jesus is going to return, make all things new, wipe away every tear. That does something when we put that in the front of our brain in real life. It puts all of our problems and difficulties in perspective. Remember the return for real life. Fight distraction with the practice of devotion. That comes through word. That comes through prayer. That comes through life and community with God's people. Pray the promises for yourself and others. If you uh, lack handles when it comes to hope and holiness, look through the New Testament or just Google prayers in the Bible or the prayers of Paul and you see again and again this uh, just a fully orbed theology that is lived out in prayer. Walk patiently and reject passivity. They say, uh, this life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And, and I'm not bragging at all. I've done sprints and I've done marathons and life's not like either of those things. It's like ultra marathons and like an ultra marathon that doesn't ever end, <laughs> ever. <laughs> I've done one that felt like that and, and it's very much like life. Highs, lows, everything in between and what is most needed is just patience in it all. One step in front of the other. Then finally, the why of it all is witness. In following Jesus, in growing in grace, in being convicted of sins and tendencies that aren't healthy, where we live more towards the flesh than in the spirit, the reason we need to kill those things is not so that we feel better. It is not so that we look better. It is so that others around us may sense the ripple effect of our life and see Jesus. So for your parents, like for you parents, that's why you repent with your kids of your hypocrisy, of where you fall short, and you don't have to beat yourself up about it. You just apologize with your kids. I did not reflect Jesus to you, and I'm sorry. Cool. But the reason you live the way you live is so that your kids, and this is for all of us, might see Jesus, not in a holier-than-thou kind of way, but in a transformed, growing-in-grace kind of way. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, who lived, who died, who rose, and is saving us and is reaching the world through our lives. It is wild to think that salvation and has met Prescott, Arizona, and it's continuing to spread out. And the, the means you have chosen is through the lives of people in your church, through the words that we say and the deeds that we act upon, through what we say no to, through what we say yes to. And so God, help us to get a vision of that, that our lives have been given and redeemed and washed and purified so that we can have oneness with you and put on display your love in the world. And for that, we need your help. And so as we respond now, would you continue speaking and working? In Christ's name we pray, amen.